Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. So have you ever had something happen to you and you just knew that it was going to change your life forever? We have those kinds of events, don't we? Um, graduations are like that. Like, uh, you know, one chapter closes, another chapter opens. There's just kind of that feeling to a graduation, isn't there? Or maybe the birth of your first child, if you're a parent. You hold that little human being in your hands and you realize your life and your wallet will never be the same again, right there. Uh, or, or maybe you've survived a... Uh, a, a life-threatening illness. I've known people that survived heart attacks, and maybe you have too, and then that just seems to change your life. They change their diet, change their exercise, they change their whole lifestyle. Marriage is another one of those, isn't it? Marriage will change your life. I mean, if marriage doesn't change you, you're doing it wrong. It's just impossible to put two individual me's together and make one we and not have that change the people involved right? There's just these things we have in life. When they happen, you know something is different. I might not even know what it is that's going to be different, but I know it's different. I know it's new. My life is never going to be the same again. That's the feeling that we have coming into Revelation 21 and 22. We are now at the end of the Bible, the last two chapters of the whole Bible, and the whole feeling here is something new. Something is up. Everything is different. And we don't have really any context here that dictates or informs us about what it is there. Like, it's going to be completely different, new. Revelation 21, verse 1, opens up with this statement. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that the writers of the Bible or the people of the Bible um, celebrated or talked about a new heaven and a new earth. 700 years before the Apostle John wrote this book, Revelation, the prophet Isaiah lived. And God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said this, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. God spoke those words 700 years before John wrote Revelation. And then you move the timeline up and you have the, the Apostle Peter. And Peter, of course, he's a contemporary with John. They were both disciples of Jesus. But here's what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3. He wrote this, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And he goes on to say, We then, according to his promise, what do we do? We look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then John writes of a 
seeing a new heaven and a new earth. What's up with that? We get a new earth. I mean, you look around, we've kind of made a mess out of this joint. It wouldn't be bad for it to have a renovation. Don't you agree? So I get that. But new heaven, like new heaven. I thought heaven is a perfect place. Why would there be a need for a new heaven? If you remember a couple of weeks ago, back when we looked at Revelation chapter 12, there was a war in heaven at one time. You remember the story? A dragon and his two beasts, they fight against Michael the archangel and the other angels. So it seems that heaven, as wonderful as it is, its own history is marked by rebellion and war. And so God says, I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And when God says that, don't misunderstand him as though somehow he's given himself a mulligan. You know, the first project didn't work out so well. God's got to tweak a few things. He's learned a few lessons, and now he's going to make it better the second time around. That's not at all the spirit of new heavens and new earth. No, but think of it this way. Like, new heaven and new earth has actually been God's plan all along. What if this heaven and this earth is just the, the means to that end? Like, what if this heaven and this earth is more like the scaffolding? You know how scaffolding works? Scaffolding, you build it up around a project, and depending on how tall the building is, and the scaffolding's built all the way around it, and what's on the inside is actually going to be the finished project. That's the goal. And nobody ever looks at scaffolding and says, oh, man, that is beautiful scaffolding. Nobody looks at scaffolding and assumes that it's going to be permanent. Unless it's a government project, then it probably lasts a while. But, you know, it's temporary. It's meant to be temporary. And the idea is that when the, the, the goal is complete, then you dismantle the scaffolding and you reveal what's been worked on all along. New heavens and new earth is what God has been working on since before the beginning of time. This heaven, this earth, you and I are living in the scaffolding. And, you know, and yes, it's beautiful because it was made by God. And God just makes beautiful things. That's what he does. So there is beauty in this scaffolding, but this scaffolding is not at all permanent. And he has been working since before time began for the new heaven and the new earth. Isn't that amazing? And so, and so we come here into Revelation chapter 21, where he begins to show us what this is going to be like. Like, this is meant to be inspiring, and my prayer is that today we are inspired, that, that there's something about this today that just lifts our hearts and our souls and our imaginations even, like above the din of all of the garbage that's happening in our world. Like that we, we have to realize that there is something awesome being made, and you and I get to be a part of that as the people of God. And there's something about that that just lifts my heart above the stuff that we can get so trapped in. Amen? And I'm, I'm excited to see it. And so here's John. He's trying to show us what he sees in the new heavens and the new earth. And as we come into chapter 21, you recall last week, our wedding 
We talked about our wedding with the lamb. That got interrupted, rudely interrupted, with the dragon and the two beasts. But we took care of them. They're done. And then, and judgment, that happened. And that's over now. And so finally, the books, they were all opened. Everybody was dealt with. And we learned that as God's people last week, we play an important part of that judgment because Satan accuses us again and again, and it becomes more and more clear that he will be damned and we will be set free. And as the accuser accuses and each accusation falls short, the blood of Christ that cleansed our sin becomes more and more precious, doesn't it? But now all that's behind us, we can carry on with our wedding. The best days are ahead. And here, this final section, which is really still our wedding, we find that it's framed around these two big ideas. There's these two big, powerful, colossal declarations made by Jesus in chapters 21 and 22 that frame the whole thing. The first statement is this. 21 verse 6, Jesus says, it is done. Go ahead, you can say it out loud. It is done. done. Now, you got to say done like it's done, man. It's done. It's over. It is done done. You know what I mean? It's that kind of done. It is done. That's a huge statement. And then the second statement is Jesus says, I am coming soon. Revelation 22, verse 7 and verse 12. Now, why are these two statements uh, key statements in these two chapters? Because if you notice, John uses the same formula when he writes them, which gives us a little literary clue that they're linked. He says, the first statement, it is done, and then that's immediately followed with, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then the second statement, I am coming soon, in 22, verse 12, same thing, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So there's a little literary clue John's given you and me as we're reading this that says these two things go together. Now this morning we're going to look at the first statement, it is done. Next Sunday morning for Easter, hoorah, we're going to look at I am coming soon and the theme for that is King Jesus Returns. So I know that our, our student journals and all, and technically our, our series in Revelation, kind of, it ends today, but we're going to extend it to next Sunday to cover I am coming soon. I hope you're okay with that. All right. I, I'm okay with him coming soon. I hope you are. I'm ready for him. So, so this is what we go. So first, it is done. Revelation 21, verse 6. What is done? Everything is done. Everything is done. There's not even a crumb. There's not even a, a shred of the past left behind. It is done. How do we know that? John uses seven no mores in these last two chapters. And you remember the, the number seven, it means completion. So these seven no mores are they're just representative of the fact that these, that it's completely no more. Like the past is completely no more. It's gone. But look at the seven no mores that John has chosen. You, maybe if you read through the Bible, if you got your Bible open, you can scan through and see them. But you've got no more see, Revelation 21.1. No more death. There's a couple of them actually in verse 4. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. 
No more curse. No more night. Thank the Lord for that, huh? You say, well, no more sea. That's kind of weird. Why would John choose that to say that there was nothing more of? Well, remember, we've learned this already in this series, that in the ancient world, these ancient people, they saw the sea, they saw the ocean as a dangerous, frightening, chaotic place filled with demons and dragons and death. The sea was unpredictable. Remember that? We've talked about this before. So when John looks into the new heaven and the new earth and he sees no seas, you know what he's saying? He says, I see a place. There's no chaos. There's no danger. There's no, there's no frightening, scary things. I see a place of perfect peace. That's what he's saying. And then no more death. That'd be awesome. Sign me up for that. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. I know my back's been hurting the last couple weeks. I would really appreciate not having pain anymore. How about it? No more curse. No more night. This Isn't this great news? I mean, who would like to spend forever right, with the kind of bickering and division that we live with now? Think about it. You want to spend forever like this? No, I sure don't. Or how would you like to spend forever with war, forever with death, forever with pain? No, thank you. So John sees the new heaven, the new earth, and all of that is good riddance to you, right? The next time you watch the news on TV, the next time you get anxious over all the bad stuff, just speak out loud. Talk to the TV. I do sometimes. Just declare to it, right? Yes, but you're temporary. Just remind it. Yeah, but you're temporary. I see you pain, but you're temporary. I see you war, you're temporary. I see you division, you are temporary. See, just remind yourself that is temporary. And where you're going, that does not exist. That is no more. And what is the centerpiece of the new heaven and the new earth? All right, look at chapter 21, verses 2 through 8. Let's read this. He starts like this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. 
and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So this is the second death. You see that? That's a weird word, isn't it? The second death. What is that? Um, in other words, it's hell. The second death is another way of saying hell. Uh, think about it like this. The first death is what happens when your spirit separates from your body. Agreed? We, we say the person, they've left. They're not here. And what happens when the person separates from the body? The body dies. That's death. That's the first death. The second death is something that happens when that spirit, that person, if that person is separated from God, that person then spends forever separated from God. This lifetime is the only opportunity we have to get right with God. And the Bible says that once we die after that, we face judgment. So now is the time that I make that decision, not then. And so if I've not done that now, my person is separated from God, and when I die, I spend forever separated from God. That, the Bible calls the second death, because the spirit that's separated from God is dead. That's the second death. Now, the good news is this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Never die, he says. In other words, if you have been bought by Jesus, if he's forgiven your sins and you're in a right relationship with him, well, then your body dies, your spirit leaves your body, sure, but your spirit is always in relationship with Jesus. Forever and ever, amen, I live, even though I die. Do you catch that? So this, he says, is the second death, right? In verse 2, John refers to three things. He refers to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and the bride. You see that? Now, that's, we, that can be confusing because he's using all three metaphors to talk about the same thing. And John just comfortably floats between the metaphors, and we can easily get whiplash in it all. But you need to understand when you're reading, when he refers to the New Jerusalem, when he refers to the Holy City, when he refers to the bride, he's speaking about the same thing. He's speaking about the people of God. The people of God are all three of these things. Think about it, how these things apply to you and me as the people of God. The holy city, the holy city is a city that's set apart. It's unique. It's special. It stands out above the rest. It's holy. Are we not? We are the new Jerusalem, which is the place where God dwells. Are we not the place where God dwells? Are we not the temple of the Holy Spirit? Amen. And then he says, we are the bride. We are married. We're in a covenant union with God. Finally, God's desire has become a reality. Like this is the thing God has been working on since before the creation of the world, since before the beginning of time. God finally has a people whom he can call his very own, with whom he can dwell in covenant love forever. We are his and he is 
ours. And you get that sense in verse four, three, don't you? They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the heart of God. We saw that when we studied Leviticus back last year. That's his heart. I, he wants a people. God is looking for a people to call his own. He's looking for a people to be in a covenant relationship with him. Are you in? Do you want that? That's what he's looking for. Listen, God is not religious. He's not looking for that. He's looking for a relationship. He wants a people that he can call his very own. You wonder, how can I be a part of that? Well, verse 7, look at verse 7. It says, he who is victorious will inherit all of this. Isn't that great? So the key to inheriting all of this is you just be victorious. Now, when you hear victorious, he's, he's not, that kind of gives us the sense, I know, of like I beat out my competition. Somehow I muscled my way to the top, and now I'm victorious. But that's actually not what that means. It's really victorious in the sense of you finished the race. I mean, this, this race called the Christian life is so hard. It's so hard. It's such a daily fight. Finishing it is the victory. Finishing it is the victory. This is the good news, isn't it? This is good news for you and me. Hey, you don't got to be a mega saint to make it into heaven. You just got to finish. Just finish. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep walking with him daily, day in and day out. Keep pursuing him. Keep digging into his word and following his ways. You, you don't understand stuff? Hey, join the club, right? We're, we're continuing to follow Jesus. You struggle? Hey, join the club. Just keep following Jesus. Just You fall down? Get back up again. Keep going. You finish the race, you're victorious, Right? Just keep pursuing Jesus. Like, that's what he's saying. Be faithful. Be obedient. And you say, then look at us. We are gorgeous. What do we look like in the new heaven and the new earth? Ooh. Well, chapter 21, he starts with verse 9. And I'm just going to, what well, we've done other Sundays, skim this quick. But uh, 21, verse 9, all the way to chapter 22, verse 5 where we come to that second statement. But chapter 21, verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Stop right there real quick. Do you, does this ring any bells for you? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the seven bowls of wrath? And remember, the seven bowls of wrath are poured out specifically against false religion. And it's interesting, isn't it, that here we have one of those seven angels who had the seven bowls of wrath, and now what's this, seven, what's this angel doing? He's showing John the bride. He's showing John, these are the real people of God. Isn't that interesting? He's poured out his bowl of wrath against, fall, against the fakes, against the frauds. And now he goes, hey, John, this, it's, I think it's fitting that the same angel would be like, hey, John, let me show you the real deal. Let me show you who the real people of God are. Isn't that cool? I just think it's cool. Okay, so verse 8, verse 10. And so this angel carries him away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. 
It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and high as it is long. 12,000 stadia, your Bible might have a note in it there. I think my Bible said 1,400 miles, something like that. So, to, you know, because we don't really measure things in stadia any longer. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, second sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each gate had made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign Forever and ever and ever. See, this is where the metaphors can get confusing, can't it? Uh, because on one, if you look at it one way, you think he's describing heaven. And he is. You could argue it that way. I mean, we all know about the pearly gates and the streets of gold. Sure. But if you look at it another way, you realize he's talking about us. He's talking about the people of God. Remember? These three metaphors all point to the same thing. Holy city, New Jerusalem, people of God. So which is it? I think you could say he's talking about both. I wonder if maybe that's on purpose. Because see, we often think of heaven as this place, this faraway place. But, but what, if, what if, yes, it's a place, but what if it's also about the people and the place? What if the people in the place are intricately linked forever and ever? Can you wrap your mind around that? Like, like it's not just like a place you go visit, you know, like I'm going to go to Cleveland, 
You know, like it's not just that, not just that kind of visit. Like it's actually a you and the place are are just like permanently put together. And so when he's talking about the place, he's talking about the people. When he's talking about the people, he's talking about the place. Does this make sense? Probably not. It's about the best I can describe what I see. <laughs> but, these, but he says these, he goes, he's talking about the people of God. And remember, um, remember last year we studied Hebrews. And we learned that the Bible defines salvation as not just a prayer that you prayed one time. Remember how we learned that last year or two years ago, whenever that was, I can't remember. But the, but the Bible in Hebrews, it actually defines salvation as walking with God. You, you can't stop walking with God and then claim that you prayed a prayer 30 years ago and now you're in. Like that's really a weak place to stand. It really is. Because that's not how the Bible defines salvation as a prayer you prayed one time when you were five, and now you've lived the rest of your life like a heathen. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't, that doesn't float in Scripture. So being a Christian means walking with God, period. Like we learned a moment ago, those who overcome, the victorious, those are the ones who cross the finish line, who, who fought their whole life. They weren't perfect, but they stuck with it, Right? All the way through, you finished across the finish line. And, and here's what I personally love about this chapter. As I struggle along in my walk with God, as I struggle to remain faithful, you know, do I ever have, do you ever have days where you go, I nailed it? You know, I don't. I, every day I, you know, I, I, every day I climb into bed every night, go to sleep, and, and I, I like to review the day. And I, I love to, okay, Lord, anything I need to confess, any sins, you know, I need to deal with. I don't want the sun to go down. I don't want to go to sleep without dealing with that stuff. So, Father, what, what do we need? I need you to make right. You know, forgive me. Go through the day, what I said, what I did, my attitudes, my feelings, all that stuff. And I can tell you, I don't think I ever, it's, I always end up on the same spot. Well, God, I did my best for your glory today. And some days my best is not so hot, and some days my best is better than others. Is this not your experience too? It's mine, I know, right? But there's never a day when I go, oh, I crushed it, baby. There's never a day that that happens in my life. And yet, I look at this and I see how heaven sees me. Do you see who you are? Do you see who you are? Do you see this? Do you see you? Look in the mirror. This is you, child of God. Do you see you? Verse 11, you shine like the glory of God. We are brilliant, shining with precious jewels. Verse 12, we have walls around us, meaning we are held together. We're not a mess. We're not a disaster. We're built on 12 foundations, which are the apostles. That's verse 14. In other words, we have a solid tradition behind us. We're not some fly-by-night operation. We come from a long line of great men and women of God, used mightily by him and for him through the years. This is me. This is you. Verse 16, we are shaped like a cube, which you think is a weird shape. But really what John's saying is this. It's made of all right angles, right? We're not crooked. We're not twisted. 
we are perfectly formed. Verse 18, we are pure gold, speaking to our purity and to our value. But then it gets better. Verse 22 says that we are inhabited by God. Verse 23 says that God's glory shines on us. Verse 24 says that the nations walk by the light that we have because God shines on us. Verse 25 says our gates are always open, ready to receive, which is good because the nations bring their glory. They bring their gifts to us. They pay homage to us. It's vindication. Verse 27 says, nothing impure will ever enter us again. Wow. Right now, you know, we can get tainted by impurity, can't we? I mean, I just wake up, you know, but never again in the new world. There is no impurity there. So it will never be another, an issue in your life again. Coming into chapter 22, we discover that our center, at our center, is a river that starts at the throne of God, which is a picture that Ezekiel gave to us, the prophet Ezekiel, and then it flows right through the holy city, and there's a tree of life bearing fruit. Remember the tree of life from the Garden of Eden? Yeah, here it is again. It shows up at the very end of the Bible, and this tree brings healing to the nations, God has given his people the healing balm that the world so desperately needs and seeks. And then we behold his face and we serve him and we reign with him forever and ever. You see that in 22 verse 5? We reign with him forever and ever. Does that, wow. On those days when you feel like a goober, just Go to Revelation 21 and remind yourself of, of who you really are in Christ. This is you. This is where he's taken you. Verse, you say, well, that sounds way too good to be true. I can't believe it. Great. 22 verse 6, it says, uh, the angel assures us these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So you're questioning it. The angel says, these are trustworthy and true right here. You can count on these. Hey, most days, I know you don't feel like you're nailing it, and you definitely don't see yourself bringing healing to the nations. Yet this is precisely who you are. Let's just return to something that we touched on a moment ago, okay? When many people read this, they, they think of heaven, and they talk about it like it's some future place. And indeed, there is future. It is certainly coming. But today we're discovering that it's also actually speaking about who we are as the people of God. It's not just a place, it's the people. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride are three metaphors pointing to the same thing, to the people of God. And while it's our future, it's also our right now. And you probably have experienced this dissonance, haven't you? I know that I do too. This, this, we're caught in this, this awkward space between now and not yet. Does that not define our faith? It's like I, I am now. God declares these things about me. These are true about me now. But yet my experience says a lot of it's not yet. And so here we live in this dissonance. 
And we feel this in the book of Revelation also. You feel it, and we get dizzy sometimes. Is it a metaphor, or is it literal? And, and we get sort of twisted around. And one of the things we've been doing as we've studied Revelation to try to keep ourselves from getting too much whiplash is we've been, we've been trying to follow this, this simple little rule that the main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. And by approaching the text with this genuine desire, just to simply learn, right, to not get caught up in the conspiracy theories that we've all heard and the movies and the books and that sort of thing, but just to come at this with a fresh pair of eyes, to see the main thing, the plain thing in this text reveals that heaven is more than merely a future place with gold streets. It's also a union, it's a relationship, it's a marriage between the people of God and God himself. It's intimate. Do you see this in chapter 21, verse 3? I loved that part. It says that God himself, catch that, God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Not a mediator, not a liaison, but the infinite, almighty, eternal God of the universe himself will wipe away tears from your eyes. He will be able to gently catch them without crushing you in the process. That's going to be awesome. See, the magnificent truth, yeah, you can clap. I love it. Jesus is, whew. okay, the magnificent truth that emerges from this chapter is that we, the people of God, will reign with him in a mutual relationship. The whole point of heaven is, is not being a place where we go, but a person with whom we stay. And if that person is infinite beauty and perfection, then what kind of people must we be to stay with him? Correct. God, the one who commanded us to not be unequally yoked, will not violate his own command. His plan is to form us in such a way that we will be equally yoked with him for all of eternity. Isn't that crazy? This is where you're going. This is what God's forming in the new heaven and the new earth. This is what's behind the scaffolding. That's what's behind it. And someday that'll get revealed and whew, it's breathtaking. See, the Bible begins with this wedding in a garden. You know the story of the Garden of Eden, and you got a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and the Bible ends with a wedding in a garden city between God and his people. Back in Genesis, when God created the world, think through this. At, when God created the world in Genesis chapter 1, at the end of each day, do you remember what he said? It is good, right? So day one, it is good. Of course, our sin brought ruin to God's good world, didn't it? But thankfully, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as he breathed his last on the cross, paying for our sin that ruined his good world, what does Jesus say from the cross? It is finished. His work of salvation is finished. He paid for it, dealt with it done. And now, now we come to the end of Revelation. 
and the dragon is gone, and the beasts are gone, and hell is over there. Judgment is complete. All the books are reconciled. Everything is over, and Jesus declares what? It is done. Sin, pain, death, judgment, done. Done. See? Do not let the scaffolding fool you. Don't let it fool you. It's just the scaffolding. God is forming a new heaven and a new earth, and he wants to share it with the likes of you and me. Let this encourage you, friend. You have a future. You have a hope. You have something worth living for. You do. You also have something worth dying for if the situation demands it. Look at the pain. It's temporary. The death, it's temporary. The corruption, it's temporary. And now look at yourself. Look at what you have. Look at who you are. Do you see it? That's forever. That's glorious. Revelation 21 is who you are. You are renewed. You are pure. You drink from the water of life. You have inherited the kingdom of God. You are beautiful. You're held together. You're whole. You are not alone. You walk in a long line of great men and women of God, starting with the apostles themselves. The glory of God shines on you. God dwells with you. You see his face. You bring his healing to the nations. This is who you are, people of God. If you remember, John is writing this originally to a people who were being killed. They were being killed because they followed Jesus. Emperor Domitian was on a rampage across the empire to get rid of Christians. And John's encouraging message to them was this. Death cannot take away what you have in Christ. Death is temporary, isn't it? Remember, death is one of those things that's done. Death is done. See? So not even death can take you away from what you have in Christ. Along with the pain, the mourning, the crying, the night, the curse, it's done. But you are the bride of Jesus, and you can bet everything you've got that he will avenge you, he will defend you, and he will fight for you, and he will allow nothing to come between you and him. And when you hear those words, it is done, that's good for you. That's, that's, that's you. Like, let those words sink into your heart and to your soul. You go, oh, it, yeah, it's done. It's done. I'm not. It's done. I'm not done. That's done. Can you see that? I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're, you're facing today in your life. What struggle, what trial, what addiction, what anxiety, what fear, what, what conflict what brokenness, what pain. But can you hear this word? It's done. It's done. You are not, that is. You know, I remember, actually, this just, this just hit me, sweetie. You can come up and bring the play. But this just hit me just now. I was thinking about this. After, you know, when Karis' mom passed away, a number of years ago, she died of, uh, she died of cancer. And um, she had battled it for a long time. And I remember after she had passed, was, we were talking as a family, I think, and it, was, and, it, and it hit us that 
mom actually won. Cancer died. Because that cancer needed her body to live. And the moment that she left her body, that cancer was dead. She won. She won. Cancer didn't. She did. You know, he who believes in me, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. So, I want to close with an invitation this morning. I've asked you that we've, I want to ask you, how do you, how do you get to be a part of all this? How, how do you, how do you rise above? Remember, remember the purpose of revelation, the, the thrust here is uh, to put the fight back into you. Sometimes, sometimes the fight can get long and hard and we tend to think that this is all there is, right? We tend to think that the fight is all there is. Like, I'm never going to stop fighting. And the answer is, no, you will. Fighting itself is done. Fighting itself is done. So that's temporary. So the day will come. So keep fighting. Until, until you hear the bell. Until you hear the bell ring. Keep going. Don't get back. Be rocky. Get back in there, you know. Adrian. That's, that's you and me. Get back in there. Um. How, how do I get it? How do I get to be a part of this? Well, verse 7 told us that those who are victorious will inherit it. Remember, victorious. And victorious means you finish. That's what that means. And verse 27 says that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We even talked about that last week, the books and the book of life. So only those whose names are written in that book will inherit this. So can I ask you a question? Is your name written in that book? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And how do you know? And would you like to know? Would you like to have assurance this morning that your name is written in that book? And if you would like to have assurance this morning, then I want to invite you as we close, as we sing here, just come to the altar. Let's pray. Let's talk together, okay? Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.